0: Hi there, and welcome to the month of pain. This is a podcast for two gals and a glass half full. We are Dr. Jess and Dr. Bobby, and we're two physical therapists doing our best to lead healthy lives most of the time. Moderation's key, right? We like to see our glasses as half full. Some days this is harder than others. And we hope to share that perspective with you all by interviewing people more knowledgeable than us. So first, before we get on to our guest, Dr. Bobby. What's in your glass? Today I
1: have some clearly Canadian. I don't know. Um, this is like my childhood drink growing up and I saw it in the store and I was so excited. So how about you, Dr. Jess? What do you have in your glass?
0: Well, I'm working on staying hydrated. is warm here in Florida. We've got a test run just so you, I don't know if you all can see. There we go we've got a two gals logo um that's not that's not it, it'll look better in the future this is a very test cup but um i've got some uh coconut water in here uh, because it's uh florida heat so coconut water helps a <laughs> lot. <laughs> all right and so with us today is dr ty zimmerman and dr ty uh, tell us one what's in your glass
2: what I have in my glass today is actually a little blender bottle, but it is a berry smoothie with a little bit of greens and peanut butter.
0: There we go. That's fantastic. And uh, Dr. Tai, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: So I'm a physical therapist. I've been practicing for about four or five years. Um, I'm board certified in orthopedics and currently undergoing fellowship training in orthopedic physical therapy with Dr. Bobby.
0: <laughs> Good that. So, you also care very much about your profession and helping people is uh, what I take from that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think this, joke.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, we are in the month of talking about pain during this month. We started off the month getting that nice big picture of pain and that it's not as simple as sometimes we like to think it is, you know, and that I touch something hot, therefore it's painful. Pain can be so much more than that. And so that's where we started. Now in this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to get a little bit more into some of the nitty gritty with understanding what can we do about pain, but from a physical therapist perspective and later episodes, we're going to interview other people that aren't physical therapists and their perspectives and what to do. So today, Dr. Tai, when we're talking about pain, we've got that acute pain and then we've got chronic pain, acute pain, meaning that boom, I'm in pain right now. Ouch. It just happened. And, uh, what do I do? Okay. Uh, Chronic pain, meaning it's something that's been going on for a very long time. So when we go back to acute pain, what are some of the signals that are received via the nerve endings? Like how how is that information transmitted to our brain?
2: So when you're looking at pain, you've got two kind of primary ways that the signal gets to the brain. You have kind of A delta fibers that send pain, and you have C fibers that send pain. Um, The A delta fibers are kind of myelinated they move quicker uh, about 20 meters per second so they're like lightning quick and that's that really sharp pain kind of if you've been stung by a bee like the initial poke that really sharp hard pain that's more of the a delta pain when when you get those pains though you get a release of kind of glutamate uh, cgrp substance p and that helps with the signal transduction and creates uh kind of the healing factors and all of the inflammation that comes after the fact after the initial pain you can start to get C-type fiber pain, which is more that dull, achy stuff where it's just kind of like everything hurts. Um, <laughs> and that, I liken that more to like the little bit of venom after the bee sting. So initially you have that sharp stab, but then you kind of have that dull, achy, like oh. why that's important is because you can treat them a little bit differently.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think that's that's a big picture of pain, right? Is that all pain is not created equal. So, and how we address pain really needs to be different based on the circumstance that you're in. So if you touch something and it's like, ouch, hot, right? That's actually a good signal because you need to get your hand off of the hot burner or you stepped on glass and you should probably move your foot off of the glass. (laughs) So these are protective signals that our brain receives in order to help us survive in our environment. So pain isn't necessarily bad, it's a form of survival. However, (laughs) it's feeling from the pain that then, you know, addressing that. So, So in that acute situation, how would you maybe differ your approach to addressing that kind of pain than the pain that's lasting longer and is more of in that achy sensation? Like what are different strategies you use?
2: So kind of like you said, if you step on a piece of glass, that A delta sharp pain, you need to change whatever's causing that stimulus. You need to get that piece of glass out. You need to move away from the hot stove. Right. Uh, it's more important kind of from what we treat mechanically changing the mechanoreceptors moving the sore parts away from what's creating that soreness right
0: yeah. which is i mean and I, I think sometimes what we perceive as pain if it's and we'll get into this in a minute if it's chronic in nature then the brain can start to get a little bit confused and still treat it more like it's that acute pain and that there's uh, some sort of danger. And I think being able to really separate out the different kinds of pain, it's helpful and empowering for people to know what is truly danger harm and what is not. And I think the faster that we can have individuals understand that, the faster you can really start to develop your own individualized plan for addressing pain right so but again it's it is acute and then chronic lasting long long duration so acutely yeah we might like in physical therapy we might say yeah put some ice on that right treat that inflammation that happens that red hot swollen right um maybe sometimes i'll do some compression on that especially if it's really <laughs> Red hot bone with some ice, elevation, muscle pump, all sorts of things to really calm down that really, really acute response. Right, doctor Ty, is there anything else that you typically will recommend in that situation, other than you know change change the environment, uh, get away from the hot, get away from the glass, whatever the harm is, get away from that? Um, what are other like situation situational based things that you might recommend for that more acute onset?
2: So I see in a lot of the really acute stuff, the fresh stuff. There's that swelling reaction that we actually don't want to discourage right away. And this is one of the topics I think is pretty interesting. We probably are icing way more than we need to, you know, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes after you had rolled your ankle and it's ballooning, absolutely put a little bit of ice on it. We don't need to keep icing that for four to five days after, because we want to encourage a little bit of that protective swelling. Absolutely. Um, So kind of educating people that way is important, I think. Yeah. So is there a time to go by? Oh, sorry.
0: Go
1: ahead. Talk to Bobby. I was going to say, like, for example, I think a common one is like an ankle sprain we can talk about is also like getting treatment quicker. A lot of times, at least in my clinic, we tend to see them six weeks afterwards instead of like right away. But trying to get them in quicker so you can provide that education um and not necessarily provide treatment like kind of let the body do what it's to, supposed to do but provide enough education on how they can and like improve their situation improve their pain um and in, uh, in pet or increase this, uh, the healing speed
2: yeah and when you look at but... just initially 2 to 4 weeks you start to see a lot of improvement in most tendon and ligament injuries mm-hmm. um and bone itself six to eight weeks so if you're having a little bit of a bone stress injury or something acute like a a sprained ankle it should rapidly get better so if you can get in and get some education quickly on an acute injury that's sharp and painful and you can't walk on that's more important because you can prevent some of the chronicity that develops
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's usually like my rule of thumb that I tell patients. I'm like within two weeks, if you're not significantly better after that acute injury, then it is not an over response to ask for help. So that's actually going to push you forward way faster than waiting till six, eight, 12 weeks later. Um, but like that first two weeks, I mean, like Oh, like more or less 50% healing should be done. You should be significantly better within those first two weeks. If you're going to heal, uh, like you like without any help at all. Um, and it just heals on its own normally. Um, so, uh, so that's acute pain, right? Inflammation is not bad in the beginning for that first 24 hours in order to be able to sleep because it's hurting or, you know, it's ballooning and it's just like horribly uncomfortable. Yeah. Like treat that inflammation right away. It, you know, typically will help you be able to get some rest, uh, but then inflammation has its own chemical response and it's delivering repair cells, which is helpful to the tissue. So overly Uh, restricting that is not necessarily good. But there is a balance between controlling, you know, controlling the amount of pain and discomfort, so that you can sleep and allowing enough inflammation to go through. And that's a balance that you typically would work with, with your uh, physical therapist, if it's, if it's to that much of an extent, Um, that would be my recommendation.
2: Yeah, Um, I like that you mentioned rest, because rest in the first 24 hours, maybe, you know, usually pretty good. But
0: mm -hmm. then you
2: want to get into active rest, where you're Taking a little bit of time off, say running after your ankle sprain, but you can still walk. You can go on a small hike. You can do things that don't irritate, irritate or increase inflammation.
0: Right, and I think what I was meaning more was sleep.
2: But the more you move,
0: yeah. If you can't sleep because you're in so much pain, you're not going to recover. So that's that's a really big topic that we've been trying to cover in previous months as well, is making sure that your body can actually go into that restorative sleep. And when we're dealing with people that are in pain, sometimes that pain signal is getting them back out of that restorative sleep. And this is what we see a lot with, you know, post-surgical patients or people that have these acute disc injuries, all sorts of stuff where they're not sleeping for weeks on end and their bodies are wrecked. So sometimes you really just need to find some way to be able to get the pain controlled to the point where they can sleep. And then that recovery process really starts to happen. Um, the <laughs> sleep is a definite thing.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. All right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about chronic pain. So acute pain, that's very straightforward. I mean, it, it really is pretty straightforward. It's hot. It hurts. It's sharp. It hurts. I cut my skin. I bled, whatever. Um, now chronic pain, this is what I think is the biggest topic that's very misunderstood. And I think this is what deserves a little bit more of an understanding. Um, you might disagree. I just know from my patient population, chronic pain can be a, um, they think of it more as, as this mechanical cause and effect when really there's so many other contributing factors for what the brain is perceiving as a painful area. Um, I don't know, Dr. Tai, if you feel the same. If you've seen that with your patients,
2: yeah. The, as soon as it becomes chronic, it, it becomes so much more complicated. And yeah. if you know a little bit more about the neurophysiology, what's happening, it makes a lot of sense because there's so many different areas of the frame of the brain that start to smudge together, that start to bring in emotional, um, you know, experiences, connections into that pain response.
0: Right. Yeah. And this is what we covered in the previous topic is the stress response, the emotional response, plus that mechanical response. So all of these are working together for what your brain is perceiving as pain. And so if you haven't slept well, or you have that relationship in your life, that's really stressful. You were just in a big argument. uh, Work is really getting you like overworked and overwhelmed or whatever it might be. That amount of pain that you're feeling is going to be higher. It just is. So it has nothing to do with, you know, those stitches not healing well, or the bone not healing like it's supposed to. Um, Sometimes there is all these other contributing factors. So being able to really take some time and separate that out is helpful. Um, But from a mechanical perspective, right? So we've got that pain signal that comes in. You're talking about those fibers that come in. Can Can you talk a little bit more about what happens when that signal comes in? So I've got a little receptor in my finger, right? And that signal, is comes onto a nerve ending and that nerve ending travels through my arm to my spine and it goes up to my brain, right? So what happens when that signal has been going on for a long time, like more than a couple of weeks, same signal, same signal,
2: right? The, The more that signal starts to play on, the more it starts to activate the other parts of the brain, other than the somatosensory cortex, you start to see an increase in like the anterior cingulate cortex, the emotional experience. Um, and it actually sensitizes those parts of the brain so that they react to a lesser level of insult. So even though that little pinprick in your finger keeps getting sore, less of a pinprick, and then all of a sudden a light touch will start to sensitize and engage that same area of the brain. It's actually powerful that happens.
0: Right. So it's, it's quite interesting because the um, Like, and that's kind of what we we kind of talked about too, is thresholds. And so typically we have this threshold that might be up high, right? And, you know, I can, I mean, I mean, I could stub my toe pretty hard and it's gonna, it's gonna hurt, but like, it'll, it'll stop in a minute. I'm just kind of ticked off for a minute. But when my threshold is lower, we'll say down here, it's not, I mean, I might stub my toe, but I might like barely nick it. And then all of a sudden my brain is just like, whoa, yeah, that was really, really, really hurt. And it stays hurting. And now it's my whole foot that hurts, not just my toe. And then it it, it starts to become this like really convoluted signal. And then it's hard to understand why this is happening. Um, But I think what you were explaining with how the brain itself becomes overly sensitized, which is interesting. Hmm. It gets overly sensitized to pain. Now I can start to see how people stay in pain for long duration. And how things maybe show up on imaging, right? Or maybe they don't show up on imaging. Maybe I'm in all of this pain and I have every scan in the world and it shows nothing. That's infuriating. I mean, absolutely infuriating. How like, how would that not be infuriating? There has to be a reason for this, but it could be that the brain has just become overly sensitized. So, Dr. Tai, in these situations, What are different strategies that you use with patients when nothing shows up on imaging, but they clearly are experiencing pain?
2: I think just what you're talking about, giving them a little bit of the education. I think some of the pain neuroscience education stuff that we do for patients is helpful. It just can't be a standalone treatment. So helping them to understand that there are these processes in the brain where you have this insult and then the chronicity develops, your brain starts changing. Uh, people can understand that usually pretty well because they have the experience on the other end of things. You've heard the stories of like a mom that has an injury but then can lift a car because her infant's getting hurt. Right. Um, you guys have heard of Kel- uh, Carrie Strugs, right?
0: Tell me more. That yeah. is my memory names.
1: <laughs> gymnast, 96 gymnast. Okay. Pulted yeah. on a broken ankle to win the gold for US.
2: Yeah. So if pain was just, Signal that stops your brain from doing something, she wouldn't have been able to do that. But, like okay. you're talking about the stub toe example, all of a sudden there's this tissue damage. It's not even that bad. It's a potential threat that your brain on a bad day, when I've poked my wife a few too many times and she's not having a good day already, didn't get her cup of coffee in the morning, she gets a little <laughs> more angry when that happens. Don't, <laughs> do
0: her. she has not. <laughs> I'm saying, I am a wife of somebody, don't do it. <laughs>
1: I like to also explain to my patients on how those pain, the signals um, after a while continue to be sent, Um, their brain is still receiving, even though there's no tissue harm, their brain is still receiving the signals as if tissue harm is happening to kind of help them understand like why they're still feeling that same pain that they felt the day they injured it two months, three months, four months later, but that, you know, just the brain is reading that as damage, 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 even though it's not necessarily further damage that's occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's finding a way to decrease those signals, finding a way to change those signals. Um, And I think that's where a huge um, aspect of therapy can come in to try to like figure out how can we change what the spinal cord, what the
0: brain is receiving. Yeah. And I think that's with the, like the dry needle training that I did, there was a lot of research with dry needling and being able to treat, for example, trigger points and help with that, that constant bombardment that can happen by a trigger point being present inside of the muscle, which is just a, a top palpable band. Right? So if I'm like, if I've got my forearm here and I'm like rolling, I'm flicking over a top band in there and that band, and maybe it even refers pain um, down into my further down into my forearm If I treat that part of the muscle that's just holding like that all the time, that's one strategy to help to decrease that bombardment, right? So there's different things that could be contributing to that bombardment that we might not realize are, and that could, they could receive help. Um, Dr. Tai, what are other things that you've noticed that develop other than trigger points that can be contributing to that constant bombardment and how we can get it down and quiet that back down again?
2: I think nerves are a big, big player. Um, if there's yeah. tension at all along the nerve root, I tell most of my patients, hey, it's like a garden hose. If you've got a little kink in your shoulder and your neck, you're not going to get any water down at your wrist. And right. you know, maybe it's a carpal tunnel or maybe it's a cervical radiculopathy, but you can treat the neck to have an effect downstream at the nerves. Right. Um, and similar to your trigger point example, if we're talking about the elbow, uh, like the radial head, if you're not supinating completely while you're trying to carry something, you're going to lose a little bit of strength. The muscles are going to have to work a little harder. They're going to have to pull that stiff joint and now they're going to create more resting tension, resting EMG. Right.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think it's, I just, I I love this topic because it's so interesting. All of the different things that can contribute and you've got to think up the chain. You've got to think down the chain. You've got to think nerve, soft tissue, joint, ligament everything really should be as normalized as possible in order to decrease that pain bombardment. It's typically not just, we put our hand on the point that's painful, treat that, and then it all just calms down. There's usually so many contributing factors that you just need to have someone take a step back and really understand why is this happening? Treating the symptom, I mean, that's easy. You point to it, someone treats that sure, but that's not necessarily going to stop that chronic bombardment. Um, and I think that's something that sometimes when people have tried different things in the past, they're more treating the symptom of the pain and not necessarily the cause of pain. And that's where I just, I think us as physical therapists, that's something that we're trained to do. And hopefully there's other, um, practitioners out there that are also trained to look for the cause for whatever might be going on. Um, Now that brings me to back to imaging. So we're gonna kind of bring that back. So we talked about the person that has imaging and it's negative and that's so frustrating because you have symptoms and the imaging is negative. Now let's go to the person that has imaging, but the imaging is positive, okay? So we've got, let's, let's go with spine, okay? So we've got degenerative disc disease, a really broad, broad one. I guarantee you, if you imaged my spine, I'd have degenerative disc disease. I've had two pregnancies. Um, you know, it just, yeah. you know, I'm not in my 20s anymore. So, uh, so anyway, so Dr. Tai, what what is your perspective on, on imaging and using that to help guide some of the decision making that you do inside the clinic?
2: Well, there's kind of two big things. Absolutely. When you have an issue that to be imaged, it needs to be imaged. You're ruling out something. I have a lot of primaries, a lot of um, medical practitioners that just order imaging because there's pain. And, mm-hmm. and that doesn't always help. And it starts to, to to have people develop this kind of fear avoidant um, lifestyle where they say, I have degenerate disc disease. It hurts every day. It's never gonna get better.
0: Right.
2: But that's just a normal part of aging. Right. Uh, there, there's a really cool study, uh, Brejinki in 2014, took a whole bunch of asymptomatic spines, people that were just off the street and they took imaging of it. And anywhere from 20 to 80 years old and they just found out how many findings these people that had no pain walking down the street, what was wrong with them? And and when you start looking through the table, I actually show it to most of my patients that tell me, oh no, I have a disc bulge, I'll never get better. Um, You know, after 30, if you don't have degenerative disc disease, you're actually abnormal. Like you're in trouble if you're clean at that point, 40% over the year 50, you should have disc bulges, protrusions, you know, it's just part of aging. It's not always, you know, and that brings us back to kind of the whole pain, you know, a Delta C fibers. It doesn't always have to be in tissue injury and insult it's something pinching on a nerve on a disc that causes the inflammation of the pain. There's a lot of other reasons you could have pain.
1: Absolutely. I think one of my favorite quotes, and I heard um, Tamara actually say it when she was teaching a class first is that imaging is a static picture of a moving body. Um, And that you're only when you have an image, you know, you're only seeing a specific part of your body at a specific point of movement. And you don't live in that movement the whole time. You're, you're constantly moving through Um, If we imaging that we watch everything as you move, that would be pretty cool. You know, and give us a lot more information at that point, because you can see what's happening as you move. But I think a static image is really good sometimes for those red flags, those emergency situations that need to be ruled
0: out. Yeah, the red flags are key. Are we dealing with a fracture? Are we dealing with a like full blown herniation into the central cord? Are we, you know, like all of these things that are actually really, really bad for sure. Imaging rule it out. Um, but I like with the degenerative disease, I kind of point to my hair. I'm like, you see those grays in there? Cause I don't cover them up yet. I don't know if I will. I'm still on the edge with that. Probably not. I am not go, but anyway, so I've got grays. Okay. That's, that happens. That that's my aging process. You know, I've got some wrinkles starting here. Okay. Just a few. I don't say more than a few. Um, then <laughs> I also have the start most likely of degenerative disease. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, a contributing factor, would that maybe decrease my threshold a little bit compared to what it was? Sure, right? So my threshold might not be up here anymore, it might be here, but that doesn't mean that every single thing that I'm doing that's hurting my back is just because of this one diagnosis. So, and I think that's where kind of taking that step back and and really understanding imaging from a little bit of a different perspective and not letting it label you. Um, is something that I really work on inside of the clinic with my own patients. Because those labels that you put on, it's like it's my bad shoulder, it's my bad back. That's yours. Don't call it a name. Be <laughs> hey, nice. Jeez, it's never going to get better if you speak mean words like that. Um, so, um, so Dr. Tai, what are some of the most common findings? Like I use degenerative disease because that's one I just hear all the time. But what are some other common findings that can be kind of normative?
2: Um, facet degeneration, that's a really scary sounding term, which is Ugh. essentially disc, uh, degenerative disc disease, but just on the outside of the spine, right? Um, yep. All the disc things, uh, signal height loss sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a little bit of loss of water content. We don't move as efficiently when we get older and we lose that kind of bounciness. Mm-hmm. And that's just what you're seeing. Um, disc protrusions, bulges, herniations, annular fissures, all those things that can happen at the disc show up, but they're not bad. Even things like a spondylolisthesis, you know, they show up, they're not completely abnormal. Um, the interesting one I've been seeing a lot more of are compression fractures and insufficiency fractures Mm -hmm. where I have someone coming in that's maybe got a little osteoporosis, maybe not as uh, active at 70, 80 years old. And they're having back pain so they get an image and they're like oh my god my low back is killing me I have a fracture at t12 like no your image says that was from a while ago it's a healed t12 fracture and you have low back pain I understand but that's different
0: (laughs) right t12 is in your mid back so so yeah so if it's in the low back then why would that mid back fracture cause low back pain no I think there might be something
1: else going on, uh, yeah. Well, that's, as you said, um, with the spondies, you know, I had a gymnast who had bilateral fracture, um, slippage, you know, not not great in a gymnast. And the first uh, physician she went to see, he told her her career was over and this kid is 13, 14, and her whole life has been to do college gymnastics and to walk into a room and have a doctor very coldly say, we are done. Um and so they call me obviously upset and I'm like no 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 like no and ultimately they found another physician that was great with kids and helped her and she I mean obviously had to take time off had to do a lot of therapy had to do a lot of strengthening but she is back in the gym pain free yes they don't know if the fracture will ever heal they don't know like if that slippage will ever um you know it's probably there forever but she has no pain she's doing great she's learned how to manage it and um. I think a lot of times those words just scare us and there's sometimes practitioners and not just doctors that uh, say detrimental wording to us instead of like giving us chance to get back to what we love and what we want to do.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that's the number one thing that I try and do as a takeaway with imaging. Imaging is really important, especially when we're looking for red flags, things that are unstable, things that could create long-term damage obviously those are, those are situations that might require surgery, might require something a little bit more intense. And for sure, that's all on the table. That's all a possibility. The biggest thing is making sure that if you have positive imaging, take it a step further and just really make sure is this situation an unstable situation, or is this situation, a situation that could be managed. Okay. So like, managing our bodies is not a bad thing. Maintaining muscle length, strength, mobility is just good. We maintain our cars. We bring in for oil changes and we put in on the new, the, the tires every so many miles and the, the band things that go around serpentine belt and, you know, the spark plugs. So we, we maintain that vehicle to make sure that it operates at this level that we want it to operate. Uh, but when it comes to our bodies, it's like, it's either broken or not well, why, why does it have to be broken or not? Why can't it just be, we're, we're maintaining this body that's aging in time. I mean, that that's just a concept that we could go on using imaging to think about it that way. Well, what are all of the things that I need to be aware of to make sure that maybe I do keep a stronger core. Maybe I do really keep my hips moving. Maybe I really do work on maintaining my mobility because I know I've got some stuff going on in that low back, but it doesn't stop me from doing anything I want to do. I make sure it doesn't. Uh, and I work with somebody that understands that, so that's just my perspective. Um, and I think Bobby, Dr. Bobby, is very similar. And and Ty has such a great understanding of the research and everything that goes into pain that it's like helpful to hear even from that just more research perspective that this is not just like us blowing smoke. <laughs> it's <laughs> it is evidence based. Um, so. Uh, So that being said, Dr. Tai, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you being part of this conversation, raising awareness of what is pain is something that we are passionate about. We want to make sure that we share that with our viewers and that pain doesn't have to be scary. It can be something that just takes a little bit more time to understand and, and just kind of take a step back from that a little bit. It's, it's a really, really broad, complex topic. Um, So Uh, make sure um, listeners follow us on our social media uh, platforms. We're on Instagram, we're on uh, Facebook. Uh, Eventually, we might be on TikTok. Not yet. We are working (laughs) on it. Um, But uh, Please do subscribe so that you get updated uh, information as we release it. We do release once a week. So we appreciate you all. And uh, thank you for joining Dr. Tai.
2: Thank you.